Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and I'm glad that we could be together today. We are taking our lessons from the Nazarene Quarterly, and we're actually beginning a new series for the fall that's built around the Ten Commandments. Today's lesson comes from September 6th, and the title is God's Life-Giving Instructions. But before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. I'm going to pray Paul's prayer that he made for the Philippians. He says, This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. And I hope that is, uh, that's my prayer for you and for us as we study this lesson today. You know, our lesson focus says, God's laws give life to those who follow them. You know, when we look at laws, every state has their own weird little laws. For example, in Indiana, it's illegal to catch fish with your bare hands. In Minnesota, don't try to hold a grease pig contest. Those are outlawed. And you also can't toss a chicken in the air. Now, I don't know why you'd want to do that, but if you're in Minnesota, don't. In New Hampshire, you can't hold a picnic in a cemetery. In New York, it's illegal to take a selfie with a tiger. That sounds like good advice to me. But we have all of these laws that man makes, and some of them are good and some of them are bad. But today we're going to be looking at God's laws and about what God's laws have to offer us. You know, we know that we need to have laws, but we usually consider them a necessary evil. A lot of times we agree with Henry David Thoreau, who wrote, That government is best which governs least. Laws, by their nature, they restrict our freedom. They keep us from doing what we want to do. And we realize man's laws are often flawed. They may be put into place for the wrong reasons, they may have unintended consequences. You know, a lot of times it's just hard for us to design laws that work really well. But God's laws, God's laws are a different story. Scripture tells us that God's law is not something that we should just put up with, uh, but it's something that we can delight in. In our text for today, we're going to be looking at Psalm 19. And the psalmist shows us that just as the heavens are God's glorious creation, so too the law is God's glorious creation. Both of them reveal who God is. And so just as we stand in awe when we look at the universe, we also stand in awe when we look at God's law and realize what it truly is. The, the Torah is the name that's given to the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. And this formed the basis for all of Jewish custom and practice. And we usually refer to these instructions or commands that God gave Moses. We refer to them as the law. But the literal meaning of Torah is not law, but rather instruction or teaching. When we look at God's laws for us, it, it helps us to think of them as instructions rather than laws. The point of God's law is not to lay down arbitrary rules. 
to see if we're going to obey them or not. It's not like God is playing some kind of extended game of Simon Says with us. God's commands are given to us to instruct us in how to live so that we are in harmony with God and with His creation. Now, Genesis tells us when God created the world, He saw that it was good. Genesis 1.31, God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. The goodness of that original creation is expressed in the Hebrew idea of shalom. The word is translated as peace a lot of times, but it means much more than that. Uh, the, the meaning is the idea that everything God created, it worked together in an extraordinary way so that the whole of creation was more than the sum of its parts. Uh, in accordance with God's design, everything was interconnected. It was interdependent. It worked as it was supposed to. Uh, Cornelius Plantinga says, Shalom means the universal flourishing, the delight, uh, the full flourishing of human life as God intended it to be. So we can see that peace in the Jewish sense really is this total symphony of life that's made possible when we have a meaningful relationship with God. And God's laws, His instructions, it's to show us how we can have this meaningful life. And so, you know, we have the mistaken idea that God's law is an Old Testament concept. The New Testament does away with the law, and we have no obligation to keep the law, to obey the law. There's nothing to be gained by obeying God's laws. But this is not the truth. The mistake made by the Jewish people, and we see this with the Pharisees and other similar groups, was to, to think that the law could redeem them. Now, this was outside of what the law could do. It was outside of what God intended the law to do. But the law in itself is good. Romans seven twelve says, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. And so we're not under specific regulations or blessings or curses of the Mosaic law today. That was for the Israelites in their time, in their day. But even today, God's Word tells us His laws are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, according to 2 Timothy 3.16. And from God's law, we learn about God's holiness, His justice, His character. Uh, Amy Hall writes that from God's law, we learn what God loves and what God hates so that we can know God and know what it means to love Him and to love our neighbor. Now, as we look at Psalm 19, uh, it's written in two very distinct sections, verses 1 through 6 and then verses 7 through 14. And when you first look at it, it almost seems like two different psalms, two di distinct ideas. The first part is about the heavens and how the heavens reveal God's glory to us. The second part deal with God's law, the perfection of that law. So we ask ourselves, why does the psalmist put these two sections together? And I think it's because he wants us to understand both God's creation and God's law. Both are manifestations of God's glory. They reveal God to us. His majesty, His wonder, 
The psalmist wants us to see God's law with the same awe and reverence that we see when we look at God's creation. It's interesting that the psalmist uses a a different name for God in each of these two sections. In part one, dealing with the creation, the name for God is El. This word for God has a root meaning in strength and might and power. But in part two, when the psalmist is referring to the law, the name used for God is Lord. And this is the personal revelation of God. Uh, We see this also in John's gospel, where it refers to this personal revelation as the logos, the word. So what we see is the created universe displays God's might and God's power. And it's a revelation of God. But God's laws are a special revelation from God as well. They are the Word from God, revealing God's righteousness, God's holiness. Now, in part one of the lesson, we look at how the heavens and the law both declare God's glory. They reveal the greatness, the awesomeness of God. And we have a lot of words that we can use here. God's omnipotence, His sovereignty, His wisdom, His perfection. But they reveal a God to us who is truly infinite. You know, the heavens and and the law, both both of them show us God's craftsmanship. They are the work of God, and God's work reveals who God is. Verses 2 through 4 of this Psalm 19, in referring to the heavens, says, Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, the words to the ends of the world. And so the natural world is shouting out, showing God to us. God is introducing himself through his creation. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. And so, as we look at this universe, we see something about God. First of all, you know, when we look at the universe, we notice its vastness, the incredible size and structure of the physical universe. Uh, It's interesting, you know, when we go outside at night and if you're in a place where you can look up and you can actually see the stars, they're overwhelming to us, really. Uh, I grew up in South Nashville, right in the middle of the city. And so there was always street lights and lots of lights around and you, you couldn't see a lot of the night sky. But I remember one night when I was a teenager and I was actually down at the Nazarene campgrounds in Dixon, out in the middle of a field there, and it was almost totally dark, and you could look up at the sky, and it just seemed like every inch of the sky was filled with stars. And it was the first time, really, that I had seen the stars in all of that that scope. And so we look up there, and we see those stars. And what we need to realize is, when we look at the sky with just our eyes, Everything we can see is part of the Milky Way galaxy, the galaxy that we are a part of. 
And the Milky Way galaxy contains billions of stars. But what's even more amazing is the Milky Way galaxy is only one of probably 10 billion galaxies in the universe. And so we look up at the sky and we see all of those stars and we realize we are only seeing the inside of our particular galaxy, which is only one of billions of galaxies out there. And then something even more amazing to me is in the last years we've learned what we can see of this universe, the atoms and the gases and all of that. All of that visible matter makes up less than 1% of the total universe. Most of the universe, 99%, is made out of what we call dark matter and dark energy. It's made out of things that we can't see and detect. And so, you know, it's interesting. We had no idea this existed until fairly recently. But to know that what we see and what we are so amazed by is only a tiny fraction of what is actually there. And so as we look at the universe, the heavens, we see God's omnipotence, God's sovereignty and perfection. And so they are an example of God's workmanship. Now, uh, Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. And I like how the New Living Translation says this next part. It translates it as, The skies display his craftsmanship. Now, other translations use the word handiwork or the work of his hands, but I particularly like this word craftsmanship. You know, craftsmanship means the quality of design or the quality of the work that is shown in something that's made by hand. It's the idea of artistry. Uh, craftsmanship is to do a job well for its own sake. A striving for beauty, for quality. You know, it's, it's paying attention to the details. And this is, this is kind of strange to our world. Our world is one of, of planned obsolescence. You know, craftsman quality doesn't really matter. What we're looking for is efficient and cheap. We don't really care if something is made well. If it breaks, we're going to throw it away and buy a new one at Walmart. But craftsmanship is something that's important. And we see who God is by what he creates. His work demonstrates God's abilities. A master craftsman is known by his work. Uh, Claudia Enriquez says, The very existence of craftsmanship says a lot about who we are. So it demonstrates that God cares about his work. It's something that he gives his entire attention to. It's something that he values. You know, you've heard the expression, things worth doing are worth doing right. And so God's uh, creation shows he's interested in craftsmanship. And this craftsmanship is displayed not only in the physical world, but also in God's law, in his revelation to us. God's law is a work of beauty, a work of excellence. And it reveals the one who made it. We learn God's character from his law. Verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. 
And so from this, we can see God's Word described as perfect, trustworthy, something that can be depended upon. God's laws produce exactly the result that God intended them to do, that God promises them to do. You know, man's laws, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. You know, we often talk about laws having unintended consequences, and we can see a lot of examples in the, of this. But uh, one example I really liked was from the uh, country of India, and this was when it was still a, a British colony. And they were having a lot of problems with cobras, which you can imagine. Cobras can create a lot of problems. They're dangerous. And the government wanted to, to get rid of the large number of cobras, so it decided we will pay a cash bounty for every dead cobra that's brought to us. Well, when people found that out, they actually begin raising cobras. They begin breeding cobras so they could bring them in and get the money for them. This became a, a cash business. Well, this wasn't what the British government had in mind. So when they found out people were raising cobras, they stopped paying for cobras. Well, this left people with a whole lot of cobras, and they were not of any value, so they simply turned them loose. So the effect of the law, which was to cut down on the number of cobras, actually worked to increase the number of cobras. And so we can see man's laws end up doing things they weren't necessarily intended to do. But God's laws will never have unintended consequences. God's laws are trustworthy. They will do what God has promised them to do. Uh, it's interesting. Emma Ledger edited a magazine about personal development. And a big part of this was dealing with self-help books. And I don't know if you've been into a bookstore, but you'll find a whole section of books on how to improve your life and how to find success. And part of her job was to read through, the, through these books and uh, become familiar with them. And she, she write, later wrote a book of her own about reading through all of these self-help books. And she ended up reading, oh, like 380-something of these books. But she wrote, what really struck me was the contradictory advice. One bestseller says, go with the flow, be in the moment. And another bestseller will demand that you have a life plan. Uh, one bestseller will tell you, have it all. But then another will say, appreciate what you've got. And so she talked about all of these self-help books having an industry full of answers, but they weren't an answer for everyone. But God's law is unique. It provides answers, and it provides one answer for everyone because it was created for us by the all-omnipotent, all-knowing God who designed us. Now, we're also told God, God's laws are right. They're radiant. Righteousness is what is morally true. You know, the idea that God's laws are always just. They are true in the sense they adhere to God's holiness, His perfect character. They are radiant. You know, they illuminate what is true. They dispel darkness and falseness. We know that man's law can be created for a number of reasons. Some are created out of a desire for fairness, but sometimes laws are created to actually be unfair, to allow one group to, to benefit at the expense of another. 
We've seen this in our country back in the days of slavery, you know, in the days of the Jim Crow South. We've seen it in a lot of different cases. But God's laws are always just. They are an example of God's craftsmanship. They, they reveal God's will for us, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, God's laws uh, function as God's craftsmanship because they allow God to sculpt us, to mold us into the creation that He intends. Over and over, Scripture refers to us as God's creation, as God's work. You know, Jeremiah gave us this vision of God as the potter and of ourselves as the clay. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So God's law is an example of His craftsmanship because it shapes our lives. It's God's way of showing attention to detail. It's God's way of producing beauty and quality in our lives. With God's law, we can understand what righteousness truly is, and we can build it into our lives. If we truly understand the awesomeness of God's law, then we'll put it into practice. We will embrace it. Uh, We will then say with the psalmist, as he said in Psalmist 119, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Embracing God's law means that we, we accept it, we follow it, even when our society or our culture tells us we should be doing the opposite. You know, our society says sex outside of marriage, it's no big deal. In fact, it can be healthy, it can be good for us. God's law tells us sex outside of marriage is never His idea. It's always going to be harmful. Our society says, stand up for yourself. If you don't, no one else will. God's law says, blessed are the meek. Our society says, take revenge. You'll find it to be satisfying. It'll bring you fulfillment and closure. But God's law says, vengeance is mine. It says, turn the other cheek. You know, so we we read things in God's law. He who saves his life will lose it. And it's things our culture is telling us make no sense at all. But we have to learn to embrace God's law, to see it for what it really is, no matter what our culture, no matter what our society is telling us. Now, as we look at this Psalm 19, we not only only see that God's law and God's world show His craftsmanship, but we also see that God's world, His created universe, and His law are something of great value. They are of great worth. In fact, they are God's indescribable gifts to us, something that we are to enjoy and delight in. God's universe is a gift to us because it evokes awe and wonder. Awe is defined as reverential respect mixed with fear or wonder. You know, it's the emotion that we experience in response to something that's so vast, it defies our frame of reference. And, you know, when when we're confronted with this universe, with its splendor, its vastness, usually awe is the only response that we can have. And it turns out, experiencing awe 
has enormous positive benefits for us. Uh, Datcher Keltner uh, wrote a, a magazine article in a magazine called Greater Good. And the idea of this magazine is they look at science-based insights for a, a productive life. And, and he writes, one simple prescription can have transformative effects. Look for more daily experiences of all. And, you know, if you're interested in this, you can Google it. And there are all kinds of scientific studies out there that show the positive experience or the positive benefits of experiencing all. You know, it uh, boosts our mood. It boosts our mood, our sense of well-being. It makes us think more clearly. It decreases materialism. Uh, it makes us more humble, more generous. It helps us connect to others. It even can improve our physical health. And all produces these benefits for us because it diminishes our sense of self. Jennifer Steller writes, People feeling awe focus more of their attention outward, and they value more in social. They value others more. And so feelings of awe, they reduce our sense of how big we are, and they enlarge our sense of how big God is. And so we see the bigness, the vastness of God. Uh, you know, the Psalms reflect awestruck wonder at God's ways. Psalm 86, verses 10 and 11 says, You are great and do wonders. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your way. And then in Romans 11:33, Paul writes about, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And so the point of all, it's not for us just to, to be in wonder, to marvel at what God has done. But the point is for us to believe God's creation and God's law should produce a, a wonder, a sense of awe that brings us to belief in God himself. You know, uh, I was reading a quote where it says, These awestruck moments of wonder, of amazement, are where God finds us when we are searching for him. Both sides are seeking each other, and in those moments of awe they meet. In those moments, heaven and earth kiss each other. And I thought that was a good way of putting it. These moments of awe, when heaven and earth come together, and we're able to see God for who He really is. Now, when we look at God's law, it produces an awe that is a gift to us because it makes wise the simple. Verse 7 says, The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. You know, wisdom is a topic that is mentioned a lot in the Bible. 222 times in the Old Testament. Uh, you look at verses like Ecclesiastes 7.12, Wisdom giveth life to those who have it. You know, we live in an amazing time, and our world has access to more knowledge than we've ever had before. We know more about more things than, than ever, and that knowledge is increasing at really an exponential rate. 
But the question is, do we also have more wisdom? And there is a big difference between knowledge and wisdom itself. Wisdom is not so much a kind of knowledge as a way of seeing, according to Neil Burton. And I think he's right in that. Wisdom is the ability to discern what is true, what is right. And that is what God's law produces in us. Not just knowledge, but wisdom. And we need this wisdom because we aren't able to to judge our own actions and motives rightly. You know, we have a tendency to rationalize, to justify our own actions. We can explain why when others do something, it's wrong, but when we do it, it's right. We excuse others. We, we excuse ourselves. We blame others. Stephen Cole writes, The guy who whizzed past me is a maniac. The granny in front of me holding up traffic by her slow driving is a road hazard. And so we look around us and we can find plenty of reasons why our driving is okay. Everybody else's driving is bad. But God's law shows us what absolute righteousness is. Verse 12 of this psalm says, Who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. So God's law convicts us of our sin. It shows us our need of salvation. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Verse 11 from Psalm 19. Now, uh, God's laws are also a gift to us. They provide a source of delight. You know, Scripture tells us that the law is not something we should just put up with, that, that we tolerate, but the law is something that we are intended to delight in. Psalm 119 says, Your law is my delight. And then later on, Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands are my delight. In verse 7 of this psalm, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Verse 8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. So we can see God's law refreshes us. It brings us new delight. You know, when we are beaten down, when we are discouraged and crushed by this world, God's law itself is a gift to us. Verse 10 says about God's law, They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. And we think about that and we kind of pay lip service to it. But think of what he's really saying. Now, most of us recognize the value of money. And almost everyone thinks of money as a good thing. Almost all of us really believe life would be better with more money. That money could solve at least some of our problems. That more money would make some of these problems go away. More money would mean we could enjoy life more. You know, there are very few people among us who are truly indifferent to money. They can either take it or leave it. You know, what if this was our attitude toward God's law? That we saw God's law as something truly as valuable as money. You know, something that's going to undoubtedly make our lives better. What if we took as much delight in the law as we would if we won a multi-million dollar lottery? So from this psalm, we get a glimpse of how precious 
God's law is to us, uh, of the value, uh, of the worth of God's law. And so the question becomes, you know, why don't most of us embrace God's law? Why don't we welcome it into our lives? Why don't we seek it out and put it into practice? Why do a lot of us know God's law and yet we reject it? Scripture tells us there is something inside of us that rebels. There's something in us that is not capable of following God's law, of being obedient. And we refer to this as the carnal nature, the sinful nature. When we're told what we should do, what is best for us, we automatically want to do the opposite. In Romans 7, verses 7 and 8, Paul testifies about this nature when he says, Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would have not known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. So what Paul was saying was, I didn't know that, you know, coveting was wrong until the law told me that. But when the law told me coveting was wrong and it was going to be harmful to me, all it did was make me want to covet even more. And so if we're going to embrace the law, if we're going to get the benefits of God's law, we have to have our hearts changed. The law has to become something internal, something that's written on our hearts Jeremiah uh, 31, 33 says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You know, we're going to begin a series where we're looking at the Ten Commandments and we're looking at God's law. But the truth is those laws, those commandments are not going to mean much to us until our hearts are changed, until we allow God not just to make them something part of our heads, but until we allow God to write them on our very hearts itself. Ezekiel 36, 27 says, And I will put my spirit in you, so you will obey my laws and do whatever I command. And when this happens, when God makes this heart change within us, then we, we see how precious the law truly is and we're able to take advantage of the law and make it something of value and something precious to us. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this lesson about your law and about uh, the, the amazing thing that your law is. And we pray that as we've studied today and as we continue to look at your law, that you would help us to realize its true preciousness. And more than that, Lord, but you would do a work in our hearts that changes us, that allows us, Lord, to be obedient to your word and to your law so that we can have that true peace, that, that fellowship, that shalom that you created us to have, that Adam and Eve first had in the garden. And we'll give you the praise in your name. Amen.